Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Conversing Labs podcast. This is Reversing Labs podcast focused on threat intelligence, threat research, and software assurance. We're here with the best thinkers, researchers, minds in cybersecurity. And uh, back with us today for another discussion is Joseph Edwards. Joseph is a threat analyst here at Reversing Labs. Joseph, welcome back. Good. Thank you for having me again, Paul. So, Joseph, we're, we had you back into the studio to talk about a research, some research that you did that we published on the Reversing Labs blog, taking a look at how the Felina exploit in this um, Microsoft uh, application, uh, Microsoft uh, diagnostic tool, is being used to deliver you know, malicious payloads online. And you looked at kind of some of the different ways in which Felina is being used. Um, this is a fairly recent uh, remotely exploitable vulnerability that was discovered, in, I think it was discovered in May, patched in June by Microsoft. I think probably a good place to start is what is Folina um, and why is it uh, so dangerous? The CVE 2022-3190, uh, uh, it's nicknamed Folina, and we'll refer to it as Folina uh, just because it's less of a mouthful. Which is um, interesting, it, actually. Do you know why it's called Folina? Uh, is it Italian for mouthful? <laughs> no, it's, there's a, I think the, there's a, there's a digit, there's a sequence of digits in the, you know, in, in the malware that is the, basically the postal code for Folina, Italy, which is a community in, in Torito, Italy oh. or something. And so somebody, somebody made the connection between that digit sequence and Folina, and that's why it's called Folina. It's, it's a, it's a weird little... <laughs> It's a oh, weird little sequence. Yeah. 31051. <laughs> I don't know if that is necessarily uh, something I've seen, but... While this seems interesting, the name is not so important. Name's come, an executable co- file called 05202438. The 0438 is the area... Oh, it's a dialing. It's the area code, not the postal code. 0438 the is the dialing number for Valina. For Felina. Uh, so while it's a clever name, it actually has nothing to do with the vulnerability. There we go. Area code, not the postal code. My bad. Okay. <laughs> Maybe they should start looking at like astrological signs for naming malware. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, when it's Which an is... exploit, you know, there's thousands of exploits every year. Yeah. It's uh, difficult right. to make them stand out. So. It is. It is. There are only so many heart bleeds out there, right? Like, right. Yeah. So first question, uh, Joseph, this Folina exploit that you analyzed, um, again, it's being used to deliver all kinds of malware. Um, what is this uh, vulnerability, this remotely exploitable vulnerability in, and why is it so serious? It's fairly recently discovered, I think in May, Microsoft patched it in June. Why is it everywhere now? The uh, Folina exploit, uh, also known as CVE 2022-30190, it's basically a vulnerability in the uh, Microsoft support diagnostic tool, uh, which is that little pop-up window when you are trying to open up a file, but it's not a recognized uh, file format. So Microsoft wants to know what program you want to use to open it. Um, basically, you can specify uh, on the command line a bunch of parameters that you want uh, the, a certain file to be executed in. And in supplying those parameters is, is where uh, we have a vulnerability where PowerShell commands can actually be executed under MSDT. 
So the way we've seen it being exploited is, is you will have an open XML or Office document or a rich text format RTF document. Um, and they embed OLE objects. Um, that's object linking and embedding. Um, so this embedded OLE object is embedded as, you know, most of the files that I saw, they were embedded as relations. So you'll go into your Office document and you'll have relations either locally, so you could have like an image in your Word document described in the relations, um, or in this case, we noticed that the malicious documents were having uh, external relations that were defined as OLE objects. Mm -hmm. Basically, uh, automatically when you open the Word document, without uh, uh, enabling macros, you have a link to an externally hosted HTML uh, file. So this document links to an HTML file object. Um, and this HTML file actually has a JavaScript payload and that JavaScript payload actually triggers the MSDT protocol handler and it passes to that protocol handler encoded PowerShell commands. So that, that is what we saw um, across the samples that uh, I found during this research. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that it's not necessarily the way it needs to be exploited. There are other potential ways of exploiting this, but we can see that you know the proof of concept and all of the sort of tooling that has been developed around exploiting this vulnerability is trying to uh, place the vulnerability in with existing attack technologies like phishing documents. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily, you don't necessarily need to exploit it with this method of Word document to HTML file containing JavaScript and PowerShell. Um, but because of the way it's being exploited, that's the way I needed to hunt it for this research. You have uh, stage one, which is, uh, which is, either an XML document or RTF or Microsoft Word document. And then you have stage two, which is uh, the HTML containing the JavaScript containing the PowerShell. So you're a researcher at Reversing Labs. You obviously have access to, you know, the, the titanium, the, the file lake of you know, billions of malware files. How do you find this these particular examples of this Folina um, exploit being used? What, what are you looking for? Sure. Um, in this case, um, it, it wasn't very difficult to hunt for the two stages. Uh, I did have two separate Yara signatures. Yara is definitely the, the tool of choice for mm -hmm. hunting for me. Um, and in this case, the signatures that I needed to make were plain text. It wasn't that I needed to make signatures based on assembly code. And that's one thing that makes this exploit interesting is the barrier to entry is pretty low. Um, even before uh, people were making proofs of concepts and, and tools that could you know, embed a certain URL or PowerShell into these Word documents in HTML, uh, before that point, it was very clear that you could you know, take a, a template of XML uh, and put in literally the characters that were used to embed this OLE object, you could do this in a text editor. Um, so the things that I were looking for were plain text, um, 
there are strings involved with embedding an OLE object in an XML file. So OLE object is what I was looking for. I was looking for an external target, um, externally hosted HTML file. It didn't necessarily have to be HTML. So I, I made sure my search was broad enough uh, to try to get outliers, to try to get the few people who would modify the proofs of concept to evade uh, automatic detection. So there was one signature based on the XML file embedding an external OLE object. And then there was another signature based on the HTML file itself. Um, because the um, because the commands that were passed to MSDT, uh, the parameters based on, you know, skipping any type of human interaction and passing this encoded PowerShell in, uh, they had to employ certain parameters. And, and we saw that basically every um, HTML file that exploited Felina used these parameters. And from an attacker standpoint, this is a very useful exploit, like you said, because it's easy to leverage doesn't require you to authenticate, right? Like it's, um, you basically can just uh, pass it to your victim and, and you don't need any additional interaction from the attacker standpoint to run your malicious code on their system. And it's also leveraging something that my guess is, is basically a standard component of all modern Windows systems, right? Definitely. Yeah, so that's, a, that's attractive for attackers. You know it's there, you know the vulnerability exists unless it's been uh, patched and uh, don't need any, um, you don't need any uh, user passwords to, uh, to execute your code. Um, exactly. Talk about um, what, what some of the methodologies you saw um, in, the in the samples that you found online of these uh, exploits for how Felina was being used specifically to you know, gain, gain control over these uh, victim systems. You, you, found a, you found a bunch of different kind of methodologies at work. The samples that I chose were interesting because, uh, you know, once I ruled out the false positives and the sort of proof of concept files that people had uploaded to uh, various repositories, um, we had a couple that were very interesting. One of them that stood out to me uh, was curious because uh, the encoded PowerShell commands, you know, once you decode them, um, they force the user to mount uh, an external um, an external share uh, mm -hmm. as a network share. Mm -hmm. So there's an IP address, and this IP address had WebDAV, which is basically a file share, mm -hmm. and it used the net use command on the on the victim to mount as a local network share. So this means, I mean, and uh, the user had to log in, sorry, the victim logs in with the provided user and password. Mm -hmm. So this makes it difficult for automated tools to get that payload out without the username and password. Um, and so you can see that the attacker was trying to hide those payloads. Uh, you know, even though they are publicly available, you know, you, you get into this uh, encoded PowerShell, you decrypt it and the username and password are right there. But if you don't have that information, it's it's difficult for you to recover those payloads. And so I, uh, in the course of doing research on this sample, manually extracted those payloads from their server um, using the provided username and password and found that they had a very interesting um, Cobalt Strike sample uh, that used some interesting obfuscation and 
and uh, evasion methods. So, and Cobalt Strike is really common. Um, um, persistent access tool, right, that's used in a lot of APT attacks and so on um, to kind of facilitate access to to victim networks. Um, talk about what it means to find Cobalt Strike being used in association with these, these this particular, these Felina attacks. Um, so Cobalt Strike is a very well-known post-exploitation framework. You know, once you have some kind of foothold on some type of victim service and you want more capabilities like additional persistence, lateral movement, injecting into other processes to avoid detection. Cobalt Strike can do all of these things and it's a very commonly used tool for both red team operators yeah. and malware operators. So it is definitely an indication of uh, more intent than just something like a crypto miner um, or any other method of just having a foothold on a computer if you want to hijack the resources of one computer uh, cobalt strike usually shows that you want further access into systems one of the interesting things you you found as well is that there was um, the attackers were doing payload obfuscation um, using like syscalls which you said is a, is a way to avoid api monitoring um, and that that was a fairly, you don't see that used that frequently. Can you just talk about that um, uh, strategy um, and, and what that says about, I guess, the awareness of attackers of the different types of um, detection capabilities that they may encounter? This was definitely a, a very interesting technique to see because, you know, typically, um, you know, you have, I would say, uh, entry-level malware where they're not hiding any of their APIs. Uh, right. if, they're, if they're attempting to inject a process, they're going to open the process handle using the open process API, mm -hmm. uh, attempt to use the right process memory API. You know, you'll see these in your sandbox. You'll see them when you run the malware and you're using API monitoring tools mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the EDRs will see them when they are uh, hooking these uh, modules basically watching for those API calls. Mm -hmm. And in this case, in order to avoid that, um, the malware actually passes a hash of the API it's going to use to a specific function. Um, and that function passes uh, a value to syscall. Um, it's one of the lowest level ways in which you can invoke uh, a function. And this, this can bypass a lot of the uh, API hooking um, or API monitoring. It won't show up in your sandbox as having executed these APIs uh, unless you are also uh, enumerating syscalls and getting information and introspection on syscalls, which is not something that is super common for huh. uh, sandboxes. So it, it's, um, it, it's very, it was very interesting to see and then attempting to hunt for more samples, I realized that it, it is a pretty rare technique. So revealing a certain degree of sophistication in this particular um, instance uh, with the with the Foline exploit, um, if they're, again, worried about API monitoring, um, shows a level of kind of awareness and, and maybe infer something about potential victims for these as well, right? Right. I would, um, I mean, between the username and password access required to retrieve the payloads and, you know, the amount of obfuscation they 
put into the sample, I would say that they were very concerned about, um, you know, not burning their samples, as it were, or not uh, allowing their samples to be easily, um, easily found. Mm -hmm. uh, and even though, you know, this was an open source sample and, you know, it's not one of our private samples to where um, this was associated with a, a specific customer, um, even if this were a sample that was allowed out in the wild in order to test how quickly malware researchers respond to it, um, it does show a certain level of sophistication and, you know, perhaps they are, are, are planning to use a similar technique in a larger campaign. I mean, one of the things that you discovered is that, you know, this Felina exploit is really powerful enough that, you know, a skilled attacker could really leverage it um, and, and kind of live off the land um, uh, tools like PowerShell and so on, um, really without needing to place malware, you know, a, a, you know, a, a external malware program in the environment to get what they wanted, which is, you know, credentials, access, and so on, um, that this could really be a way of uh, really sort of level up the living off the land attacks um, uh, using this Felina exploit. Is, is that what you think really we're going to see, at least amongst those organizations that, that failed to patch this? Yeah, and I, I, I definitely agree with that. I think the, the use of PowerShell commandlets, especially in one of the other samples that I had that, you know, where the, the final payload was mostly PowerShell, um, I think it's definitely very interesting how often uh, PowerShell can be reflectively loaded into processes um, to avoid dropping artifacts to disk. Mm -hmm. you know, things, things that happen only in memory. Mm -hmm. um, you know, basically uh, mostly EDR, uh, enterprise detection and response agents, and uh, some of the next gen AVs are are doing enough memory scanning to to detect, uh, you know, PowerShell in memory. But uh, hiding artifacts from the disk is, is definitely, and, and living off the land are, are definitely techniques we see from advanced attackers. And it's, it's definitely um, much more difficult uh, for defenders to distinguish the stages as well when everything happens in memory. Right. And, and you noted actually that, that they were using, um, that the, in one of the exploit chains that you analyzed, they were using, they were invoking the Mimikatz, uh, kind of credential stealing tool also in memory. So able to harvest credentials directly from memory without needing to write to disk again, another way to sort of avoid detection or avoid, you know, uh, arousing the suspicion of, you know, endpoint detection, uh, programs as well. Yes. Uh, it was definitely interesting to see that, um, the threat actor that was using the PowerShell payloads kind of chained together an exploit chain too. Um, you know, they were very explicit in this PowerShell script about what credentials they were trying to extract from the various browsers, um, what information they were trying to extract from the host. It's all kind of there in plain text and their method for exfiltrating it using zip files, um, the way they schedule, they, uh, persist using scheduled tasks. And then of course, as you said, uh, the way that they use invoke Mimikatz. Um, which is a tool that 
is already written it's already out there in the wild mm -hmm. um they had a reflectively loaded version of it um so they did not they were able to not drop it to disk they were able to download and execute it mm. in memory um the there wasn't a lot of customization of some of these tools like invoke mimi cats so it's definitely interesting to see that with the help of just some powershell knowledge uh threat actors can make the most of uh of the Felina exploit. So um, what should organizations out there do to prepare for this? Obviously, you know, first recommendation is apply the patch at Microsoft released in June uh, for the Felina exploit uh, and apply that to any affected systems. Um, you know, we know that many organizations are slow to do that. Um, what uh, are some things that they can do both to um, remediate uh, the, the risks that Felina poses, and also to monitor their environment for telltale signs that Felina might be used, uh, being used against them. On the um, patching slash uh, vulnerability workaround side of things, of course, patch management can be a difficult process. Um, but uh, researchers have recommended, and I, I think I also recommend uh, disabling the MSDT protocol handler. Um, there are a lot of different protocol handlers in Windows, and and not of them, not a lot of them have gotten a lot of a uh, security research. Um, so there's a lot that kind of go unused and undocumented, um, and disabling that protocol handler via group policy could be a, a good workaround in the meantime while, mm -hmm. while getting that patch deployed. Mm -hmm. As far as detection, there has been a little bit of study of the registry keys and logs uh, that can show Felina exploitation. Uh, I won't get into the weeds on the registry right now. It's, but, in, your it's, um, in, your it's in your post. Right. Um, uh, for, for incident responders and digital forensics analysts, there are uh, signs of exploitation. Um, and it's you know just as easy for any blue team or, or defender to um, run one of these very light exploits uh, on a virtual machine and, and see the changes that happen um, when that request goes out from that Word document. I mean, it's really interesting to me, like when you look at this MSDT tool and you're like, huh, you know, so this is like something that gets invoked when they've got some file that they don't know how to execute or what to open with. You know, you'd think that that would have been an an application or a function that got a lot of attention from within Microsoft by their own kind of red team or pen testing team, given how it works, right? Um, and yet there was this remotely exploitable vulnerability. Um, I wonder if we're going to um, see either more, you know, more investigation by malicious actors into these types of protocol handlers and within Windows or you know, more uh, investigation into MSDT um, going forward, given given what we've what we've seen just in the last month. Yes, um, a lot of things come to mind because uh, for the industry, for the cybersecurity industry, it seems like, you know, vulnerabilities are coming out every day and everything's new. But as far as this, it's like you said at the beginning, uh, the MSDT tool has been in Microsoft for a very long time. And I was looking on Twitter and seeing that, you know, some of the more veteran, older uh, defenders were sort of pointing out, you know, these protocols, these protocol handlers aren't new. They've been around uh, and they've been 
you know, like exploits have been theorized. Um, it's really about how easy it is for an attacker to yeah. go from that theory to practice. Um, and so as somebody who's interested in, in file format exploits and uh, in all types of ways that you can, you know, wrap a file in order to confuse um, the execution, it's, it's, I can see it being very difficult to um, deal with a protocol handler like that um, that has to recognize a bunch of different files and, and make the correct determination. So yeah. I would expect to see a lot more scrutiny on on this protocol and other protocol handlers yeah and this is something we're seeing a lot i mean we're seeing it with active directory too right which is we've got a lot of technology you know technology debt out there we've got a lot of you know legacy code it's been around for a couple decades it's still incredibly widely used um but is showing its age in some ways right um and and yet you know moving off of these platforms whether it's you know, AD or, or, or something else uh, is easier said than done. So we, we, we need to find a way to, to deal with it in the meantime. Definitely. Yeah. Hey, Joseph Edwards, thanks so much for coming back and speaking to us again on Conversing Labs podcast. It's been uh, great speaking with you. My pleasure. We'll do it again.